0: Now, some of the most famous stories in the Bible are in this book of 1 Samuel, um, the story of the little boy, Samuel, hearing a voice in the middle of the night, thinking that it's Eli the priest calling him until he realizes it is the voice of God. Then there's the grown-up Samuel going to anoint the next king of Israel, and having all of Jesse's sons paraded in front of him, but it's none of these strapping young men It's the young lad with bright eyes and ruddy cheeks, the shepherd boy David, coming in from the fields, who is God's choice to be the king. Then there's David, in the most famous story of all, walking up a hill to take on the nine feet tall giant Goliath of Gath, with just a sling and some stones. And Goliath had barely finished mocking David when the stone from David's sling embedded itself in Goliath's forehead. The giant crumples to the ground, and David cuts off his head in triumph. One Samuel is packed with drama, and it's just a cracking good read, about 25 pages in your Bible. But the question for all of us this morning is what's it all about? 1 Samuel is not just a collection of adventure stories to entertain us. This is real history. It occurs from about 1100 BC to about 1000 BC. But it's not just a history book either. God is ultimately behind 1 Samuel. He has inspired this book, and He has a message in it that is crucial for all of our lives today. What is that message? Well, 1 Samuel as a whole tells the story of Israel moving from being a scattered group of tribes, each doing their own thing without any thought of God, to Israel becoming a united monarchy under God's chosen king, David. The whole book is ultimately a picture for us of the transformation that God wants to achieve in our lives. He wants to take us from the chaos of living our lives any old way we please into the beauty of living under God's word and following God's king. Those two things are really the big themes of 1 Samuel as a whole. The call to obey God's word and to follow God's king. And what I want to do this morning is to go through 1 Samuel with very broad brushstrokes, drawing out those two key themes. So firstly then, 1 Samuel calls us to obey God's Word. Obey God's Word. At the end of the book of Judges, Israel was in a total mess. God's people, whom he brought out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, had been living in the promised land, Israel, for about 400 years. But they were more of a godless rabble than they were a holy nation. The end of Judges tells a series of appalling stories of tribes going to war with each other. Israelites having their own private gods. Immorality rampant with prostitutes everywhere. And the book of Judges ends with this key phrase In those days, Israel had no king. So everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so clearly, the answer to Israel's evil was to have a king. But not just any king. Israel needed a king who obeyed God's word and then led the people to obey God's word. And that's why this book of 1 Samuel does not start with either King Saul or King David. It starts with the birth of the prophet Samuel. Samuel was the one who brought the word of God to the nation and who anointed the kings. His job was to bring the people and the king back to obeying the word of God. Samuel was born at a time when not just the people, but the priests of Israel were wicked and immoral men. The priest was Eli. And Eli saw his sons sleeping with prostitutes and abusing worship rituals, but Eli did nothing to discipline his sons. There was no godly leadership in Israel. And the book begins with a woman A woman called Hannah, a barren mother, crying out to God to give her a son. And she promises that if God does give her this son, she will literally give her son back to God. And leave him in the temple his entire life to be consecrated to God. And Samuel, as a young boy living in the temple, hears the word of the Lord. No one else in Israel was hearing the word of the Lord, only Samuel. God calls this little boy three times in the middle of the night. And God's word to Samuel was that God was going to judge the house of Eli and his wicked sons. And Samuel himself would bring the people back to God's word. This is a key theme in 1 Samuel. God's people need leaders who obey his word and bring that word to his people. That is the most basic necessity in any church that honors the Lord. Now, with ministers and whole denominations moving away from God's word right across our nation, churches will find themselves in the same position Israel did under wicked priests. Everyone will do what is right in their own eyes in the church, let alone in the world. That is a chillingly accurate description of what is happening across Scotland right now, even in the state church. So pray, pray that God will raise up new leaders like Samuel who will bring God's word to a nation and a church in absolute moral decay. That begins with praying for our own Young Leaders Academy. We met yesterday morning at 8 o'clock. Pray for our ministry apprentices, Pete and Peter Barrow. Pray for the new Citywide Ministry Academy. And pray out of that, that new Samuels will emerge to bring the church back to obeying God's Word. But of course, if God is going to raise up these new leaders, it will involve sacrifice like Hannah leaving her son Samuel at the temple as a little boy. As parents, we need to be raising our children, not for ourselves, but for God's glory, to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus. That will demand great sacrifice and devotion. May God raise up in this place mothers like Hannah, so that there will be prophets like Samuel in the next generation. Will you parents here this morning, grandparents, devote yourself to bringing up your children and your grandchildren in the fear of the Lord? It's incredible in the early chapters of Samuel how much the spiritual life of Israel depended on good parenting. Eli the priest let his sons go wild without any reproof. But Hannah... Sacrifices her own joys to see Samuel grow up in the temple. Can you imagine the emotions of taking him there? And Samuel becomes the leader who brings the entire nation back to God again. And we read that every year Hannah knit an ephod. She would bring that ephod to her little boy Samuel. This was a priestly garment. So that Samuel, from his youngest years, would live and act like a priest. Is that how you're preparing your children? Are you preparing your children to be servants of God to bring his word to his people? That's what this nation needs right now. Who knows what God could do with your children, your grandchildren, as you bring them to church on a Sunday? as you read Bible stories with them, as you train them how to think and pray biblically, Israel owed its whole spiritual renewal to a mother who gave her son to God. And so these early chapters of Samuel are about God raising up a leader to bring God's people back to obeying his words. And, of course, obeying God's Word doesn't just mean hearing God's Word. We've got to be allowing that Word to transform our lives. In chapters 4 to 7 of 1 Samuel, Israel faces the Philistines in a battle. And Israel cheers when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the camp. The people felt that they would be invincible if the Ark, the symbol of God's presence, was with them. The people were proud of having the ark of God, but they weren't actually obeying God's word. They loved the appearance of religion. They loved the symbols of religion, but they weren't following God from their hearts. And so God allowed the Philistines to rout Israel in battle, and the Philistines stole the ark of God. It was a tragic moment. The passage says, the glory has departed from Israel. But the people's faith was all show and no inward reality. They weren't obeying God's word. That's what led God to judge his own people. And brothers and sisters, that's something we need to be so wary of in our church. We can look like a busy church, full on a Sunday with a whole series of programs. We can hear loads of preaching. We can hold our Bibles aloft. God is with us. But that doesn't actually mean we're obeying God's word. The key question is, are you, am I, walking with God right now? Crowds on a Sunday don't mean a thing if we're not walking with God and praying every day for his glory and blessing on the ministry of this church. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Having a reputation of being an active church with good Bible teaching means squat. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you raising your children to love the Lord and His Word over breakfast tables, over dinner tables? Are you seeking to witness for Jesus Christ? Who are the five people in your sphere of influence that you're praying for every day, looking for opportunities to speak to about Jesus? Is your prayer life hot or is it lukewarm? Are you growing in holiness, or are you just going through the motions? That is the litmus test of whether God is truly among us, not shining programs, but transformed hearts, passionate about knowing Jesus Christ and making Him known. In 1 Samuel, eventually the ark returns to Israel. God brings the Philistines to their knees all by himself. But when the ark comes back, the people don't know how to handle it. They had taken God's presence for granted. The ark was just too hot to handle. As Israel rediscovered the glory of the God that they had lost sight of altogether. And so Samuel leads the whole nation in repentance and renewal. And brothers and sisters, before we set off on all the activity of this new term, before we think about starting up services in Tory as a new church plant, we need to rediscover the glory of God. Ask yourself, is God awesome to me right now? Have I lost sight of who He is? Because if we're not revering God, if we're not obeying his word, we will end up as defeated as Israel before the Philistines wondering what's gone wrong with all our activity. If we're going to move forward to take new ground for the Lord this new term and Satan will be very busy with us. We need to recover our vision of the greatness of God. All blessing comes from him. We won't see conversions. We won't see major church expansion if we're not honoring God in our hearts, truly obeying his word and longing for him to be glorified. Knowing Christ and making him known cannot just be a catchy slogan. It needs to be a reality that the Holy Spirit is burning on your heart and mine. I exist. I live and move and breathe to know Jesus Christ and make him known. And anything less is just empty religion ready to be swept away. First Samuel is calling you and me to be people who truly obey God's word. Raising children to love him and pass the word on to the next generation. And so alive to God and His glory and His awesomeness ourselves that He is pleased to pour out His blessing on our expanding ministry. So, 1 Samuel is calling us to obey God's Word. Secondly, it's also calling us to follow God's King. Follow God's King. The big picture of 1 Samuel is about Israel as a nation moving towards kingship. But there was a big difference between the kind of king that the people wanted and the kind of king that God wanted for them. In 1 Samuel 8, the people tell Samuel that they want a king, and that seems to be God's wish as well. But the people wanted a king to be like all the other nations, the same kind of king all the other nations had. They wanted a king to please them and not a king who leads them to God. So 1 Samuel 8.20, the people say there shall be a king over us that we may be like the other nations and that our king will go out and fight our battles for us. They wanted a king who would bring them success and status among the other nations and God was grieved. God wanted Israel to have a king who loved him first and foremost and who led the people to live lives that stood out from the world around them. Israel was to set an example to the rest of the world of what it meant to live under God's rule. They had to live different lives. And this is such a huge challenge for each of us today. God wants you and I to follow King Jesus. He's a different kind of king. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to be so different to the world around us that we draw people from the world into the kingdom of God. But how can that ever happen if we're not living kingdom of God kind of lives? Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness, Jesus said. A lot of Christians don't want to follow Jesus' radical call to live godly lives that will stand out in the office or the classroom or even in our own families. We want Jesus to make us happy and to heal us when we're sick and to give us joy and peace and all the good things that He promises without the sacrifice, without the inner transformation that He demands. We want him to give us good jobs and happy families and help us prosper in the world. But he's not from this world. He is the king who wants to prepare us for the world to come. And 1 Samuel is calling us to search our hearts and be ready for what it takes to follow the true king. The king that God has chosen for us. The king who lays down his life for us and calls us to lay down our lives for each other. A king who suffers willingly and obediently and calls us to do the same. Jesus often leads us into suffering. You should see our prayer list. Jesus is leading us into suffering. Because that is the only way that he can refine us and make us pleasing to God. But that's precisely the kind of thing that makes people walk away from Jesus. They get disappointed that Jesus isn't giving them the life that they wanted or expected. And so many Christians tone down their commitment to Jesus Christ so that they can avoid the very suffering that will make them like Jesus, their crucified king. That's the king that God wants for us. It's not necessarily the king that we want. Have you grown disillusioned with King Jesus? Is being a follower of Jesus different to what you imagined? Are you frustrated that he's leading you towards suffering rather than comfort right now? Do you want Jesus to please you or to shape you to be a man or woman who pleases God? God wants us to follow his chosen king. And the rest of the story of 1 Samuel focuses on the search for God's kind of king. At first, God gives the people the king that they want. That's pretty scary. God gives to churches the leaders that they want. Is that a good thing? 1 Samuel 9 verse 2 Saul was a foot taller than anyone else in Israel he looked powerful he looked good there's so much in Samuel about looking good rather than being good and Samuel began well by being success- and Saul began well by being successful in battle but everything began to unravel because he was compromised in his heart In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel tells Saul to wipe out every vestige of an opposition army, but Saul leaves some sheep and some cattle alive. He disobeys God's word. 1 Samuel 13, Saul is asked to wait for Samuel to offer sacrifices at the beginning of the battle. Saul grows impatient waiting for the prophet, and he goes ahead and does it himself, which is something the king would never do, offer sacrifices. That's a priest's job. And God eventually rejects Saul as king. A king with a compromised heart cannot lead the people to God. And by his absolute grace and mercy, God goes ahead and chooses his own king for the people, even though they don't deserve it at all. All the while, God is preparing David for the role. David is called a man after God's own heart. This is not the people's choice. This is God's choice. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament then, David becomes the paradigm of the godly king, and he becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. This is where the Bible gets extraordinary, how Old Testament prepares us for New Testament in ways the writers could never have known. This is supernatural stuff. The New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus being the son of David. You hear it a thousand times. David, despite his many flaws, was the best Old Testament example of the ultimate king that God was going to provide for his people. David came from a very obscure background. He was the youngest son of Jesse from the little town of Bethlehem. And centuries later, another child would be born in absolute obscurity in a stable in Bethlehem. David was anointed in a secret ceremony by Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. David was the king-in-waiting, but nobody else knew about it. Nobody else recognized him as king. Just as no one recognized Jesus' kingly credentials as he was preaching and teaching in Galilee. But David proved himself to be God's chosen king by climbing the hill to take on the giant Goliath armed only with a sling and a few stones. Why is this the standout story of one son? Why is this the one we remember? Possibly one of the great stories of the whole Old Testament. Because ultimately, David going up to fight Goliath is a glorious picture of what Jesus would accomplish for you and I at the cross. Think of the story. David fought on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. Here's their representative. They don't fight at all. They watch him do the fighting for them. And a thousand years later, Jesus would prove to be God's king by climbing another hill to take on our greatest enemy, sin. He does it on our behalf. He fought for us as he died on the cross in naked agony, armed only with his trust in God. And in doing so, he won the greatest battle imaginable on behalf of the whole human race, on behalf of you today. This matters to you, He slew the giant for us, cutting off the head of the ancient serpent that slithered into the Garden of Eden. That was the first promise of Messiah. He would cut off Satan's head, remember? Cutting off Goliath's head It's not just the end of that story. It's the continuing picture of what Messiah would do thousands of years later. Jesus is cutting off Satan's head as he dies and rises again. David's life constantly points to the ultimate king that God has chosen us. David lived a life of suffering as he prepared to be crowned king. He was running, you'll remember, from the jealous Saul. Saul is still officially king, trying to kill David because he's jealous of him. Like Jewish leaders trying to kill Jesus because they are jealous of him. But David refuses to become king by a populist route. You remember, as he's running from cave to cave, David had opportunities to kill Saul, and his followers said, go ahead, do it, David. You're the real anointed one. Do it. But David refused to take matters into his own hand, and he entrusted his destiny to God, waiting for the day when God would crown him king. What a powerful foreshadowing of Jesus, who lived this life of rejection against the leadership of the day, and he suffered among us, and he did not take the popular route to be king. Even though when he had turned five loaves and fish into feast for a multitude, they championed him. They wanted to make him king by force. He disappeared into the background. That was not the way. It was the road of suffering that God had chosen for him. He trusted God and he went the way of the cross where he would be lifted up to die. Jesus' cross was his throne. And today, right now, God presents his king to you. Lifted up on a cross for you to see. Will you accept His king or not. What a king he is. Taking our sins to the cross, laying down his life to free us from sin and death and hell. Then rising again to destroy the powers of sin and death and hell. You remember in 2 Samuel, King David was remembered as the king who conquered, overcoming all his enemies. Making Israel a feared nation on the international stage. That's a picture for us. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has destroyed all his enemies and our enemies. And he now is in a place ready to lead you and I to eternal glory. David could lead Israel to part-time glory. Jesus can lead us to eternal glory. David was Israel's greatest king. But he wasn't God's ultimate king. He was shadowing him, foreshadowing him. And, of course, the decline of David's kingdom in 2 Samuel teaches us that we need this greater king than David. Not just a man after God's own heart, who then has commits adultery with Bathsheba. We need God's own perfect son himself. Jesus is the ideal king, son of David, son of God, who has paved the way to glory for everyone who is willing to follow him. King of kings and Lord of lords is what the Bible calls him. Are you ready to accept that or not? Will you follow King Jesus? That's the ultimate challenge of 1 Samuel. It's not the easy road to take. Will you give your life to the perfect Son of God who took on the giant of sin on your behalf, the King who pleases God in every way, the King who has risen from the dead and can take you to eternal glory? He's your only hope of glory, of life beyond the grave. Are you ready to bow down to your holy, perfect, humble, suffering, divine King who loves you so much? And let him lead you to glory. That's where 1 Samuel wants us to go. God wants to take your life from chaos, doing what everybody else is doing, doing what everybody else, what looks good in everybody else's eyes. The moral quagmire that our society is in because we've got no moral anchor. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes Mm -hmm. and they don't know where it's heading. Will you allow God to take you from that life of chaos to order under his loving rule? Will you allow him to take you from ruin? Saul ends in ruin to eternal glory. To do that, you need to do two things. You need to obey God's word and you need to follow Submit to, love, adore, and pursue God's King. His name is Jesus. And he's the only one at the end of the day who really matters. How much does he matter to you?